All right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And in our, as it is ever our MO, we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. And we are having our seventh Q&A episode. Joining us once again from last episode is Dr. Linda King. Linda, thank you so much for being on with us one more time. I'm delighted to be with you guys. We are absolutely overjoyed and delighted to have you. The last discussion we had over egalitarianism and the scriptural basis for that perspective was an absolute joy. It was wonderful. Kevin and I both enjoyed it. You blew both of our minds uh, more than once in that discussion. But as we promised last week, we declared that this week, we would ask some of the more pressing questions that people have whenever we consider this question of the participation of women in worship. Because although there's a lot of scriptural basis for what we covered last week, whenever we consider what the Bible says in Genesis at the very beginning, whenever we look at the trajectory and the overarching role of women within Israel's history, when we look at Jesus's ministry, when we look at the unfurling of the sails of the church in Acts chapter two and the ministry of uh, Philip's daughters who are mentioned as prophetesses, when we look at first Corinthians 11, when we look at all of these passages, we see that it's undeniable that women played a role in ministry in the first century. And yet we have passages like first Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 and first Timothy two. And I believe it's verse 11. I could be wrong on that as well as some other passages that speak to, for lack of a better term, the subjugation of women under the thumb of men, or at the very least under the, the thumb of their husbands and putting it that way, it comes across a little stronger than what I wish that it, that it did, but that's really the best way to put it. Um, but as we discuss this, one thing I want to make clear is that there are people who hold positions that I held and that Kevin held for so long that disallowed women an active role in ministry and in the participation of preaching in a public capacity. And this wasn't because Kevin hated women. It wasn't because I hated women. It's because we appreciated the Bible we wanted to be sound in how we elucidated truth from the Bible. And these were passages that seemed to be extremely clear cut. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing some of those things. So as we kick this off, um, what would you like to say, or do you have any comments that we need to flesh out before we really get into the questions? Well, thank you, Lee. And the answer is yes, I would like to talk a little bit about how we go about interpreting. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm old enough to remember when we had marquees out in front of a church building that says, basically, um, it means what it says and it says what it means. And, you know, and no, what's the question? And I, and I also know or recall that we had a lot of emphasis on the passages that talk about uh, unity in the sense of, and there is uh, a, a, a command to all speak the same thing and be of one mind and so forth. And so we really emphasize those and ignore the larger context. And that's very evident in scripture that they, did, they didn't all speak the same thing in the same circumstances that in this congregation, 
they might do one thing and in this one they might have a little different practice and then this other one they might do something different and so the churches were not all uh, genetic clones of one another so when we say restoring the new testament church uh, we might have to say well which church the one in corinth or the one in antioch or the one in rome or the one in ephesus or <clears throat> and so forth so uh the unity is um, is that's talked about is, uh, in my understanding, a unity of spirit and a unity of uh, allegiance uh, to Christ as Lord, and uh, not that we are uh, identical in every single understanding of every single scripture or every single issue. And that's going to come up. Uh, I think in this session, because we're going to be looking at some of the, for want of a better term, troubleshooting passages where Paul and Peter <clears throat> were trying to address how to work out uh, the e equality, the initial uh, intimate, unified relationship of man and woman and Lord that was in the Garden of Eden before the fall. How do you work that out? Jesus has, has come to uh, live among humankind and model that, and he did model it, but then he ascended to heaven, left the spirit with us, and, and how do we work it out? And sometimes um, it, was, it was a little prickly trying to work that out. We even have some evidences of that in um, for example, in Acts 15, at the, what we sometimes call the Jerusalem Conference, where they um, had to hassle well uh, back and forth and have a conversation and prayer and, and some uh, wisdom from above about, well, what shall we uh, bind on these new Gentile converts and what shall we not? And how shall we work that out? Um, but before I get into uh, the various ways that interpreters have uh, read some of these troubleshooting and sometimes troublesome, uh, uh, troubling passages about the role of women, I wanted to mention a couple of principles of hermeneutics. And in my uh, studies uh, for the doctorate in biblical interpretation, we, um, we recognize that there are uh, some governing rules or principles that we should observe. And it doesn't mean that just any old meaning goes. There, uh, there may be a range of meanings that something could mean, but it's not, it means whatever you want it to mean. It's not just a blank slate. And so we try to handle the scriptures aright because we respect them as the inspired word of God, handle them aright, uh, by observing some of these principles as they may apply. So I'll just mention a few of those and then uh, give you an example. <clears throat> One is that we try to interpret a verse in agreement with its context. And that I use the word context in two senses. One is its biblical context. What are the verses and the chapters surrounding it? And the other is its cultural, its historical context. Uh, what were the customs and events that were taking place when it was written? So context has both a, a temporal and local um, 
meaning on the ground, and it also means its context as it was assembled in the Gospels we have it, or in the Pauline letters as we have them. Where does it, what is in the surrounding verses? Uh, another principle is we try to interpret a passage in light of all the other scripture. If something seems out of joint and crazy, well, it's probably not talking about um, space aliens or computers or, you know, something like that. So we, we um, being a little facetious here, but we try to look at the totality of, of scripture and see if we can identify the major themes that disclose the nature of God, the nature of God's desired relationship with humanity, the nature of Jesus, and the ideal relationship among creatures and creation, people and the rest of creation that is depicted in the totality of scripture. Um, if there's a principle set forth in a passage, we shouldn't interpret or apply it in such a way to deny the whole principle that's being talked about there. So for example, that's gonna come up, I think, in what we're, the verses we're going to look at because some of these passages have to do with reciprocity and mutuality among believers and how we yield to one another. So it would not be a good interpretive principle it would probably not show integrity and respect for the text to yank a phrase or a word or a phrase or a sentence out of that whole passage and uh, that's setting forth a principle, for example, of reciprocity and mutual submission and say, well, it, it means only this and that is in contradiction with the overall principle. So that may come up. We also should not use an obscure passage, a mysterious one, uh, a, one that's hard to understand to disprove another passage or principle that does have clear and obvious meaning. And I think that's going to come up today because one of our passages that uh, often comes up in the context of the role of women has to do about uh, with women being saved in childbirth or in childbearing. And uh, another passage, Pauline passage, has to do with women having authority on their heads, maybe wearing veils or head coverings, authority on their heads because of the angels. Well, what's up with that? And there are all sorts of opinions about that. I bet you couldn't line up 10 people who've studied it for years and have them all read it just the same way. So that's one of those in fact, it may be one of the most obscure passages, hard to understand in the whole New Testament. So that's one of the interpretive principles. We should not interpret a passage in such a way as to make it deny what we know to be true about God and Jesus from other scriptures. And then we should beware of what I call and others have called illustration reversal. In other words, taking an illustration in scripture and, and turning it around to make what is illustrated prove the illustration instead of vice versa. That's faulty interpretation. And so uh, this may come up uh, 
in the passage where Paul talks about, doesn't even nature tell, tell you that it's um, a shame for man to have uh, long hair? Well, if that's talking about the nature that I know of, meaning like nature out there in the animal kingdom, uh, the lion's the one with the big hair, the <laughs> you know, the uh, silverback gorilla or a great ape is the one with the you know. So uh, I'm not so I'm not so sure that uh, that the illustrations that are sometimes offered are meant to be the uh, they're they're just an illustration that an author is trying to make and they're not the point itself. And so there's not this um, perfect correlation or thus saith the Lord there. But in any case, I also want to begin by talking about <clears throat> translation as well as interpretation. Because sometimes uh, in recent decades mm -hmm. when uh, the role of women has called for a close look at what the underlying uh, Greek text of the New Testament says, <clears throat> there has been a suspicion that, well, I think you women may just, who are egalitarians, may just be wanting to label everything as a mistranslation that you don't like. If it doesn't suit your fancy, let's just say, well, that's not what it really says. But, uh, that that may be the case or it may not be the case. And so it's worth uh, a little bit of thinking about what happens in translation. And this is where it gets into matters of faith. And I want to uh, talk about translation by turning you to a weird, uh, an unexpected place. And that's in Mark chapter seven. If you, uh, if you would like to look it up, it's... Um, it's the story about where uh, Jesus's disciples were being uh, criticized mm -hmm. by the Pharisees and, and actually all the Jews saying, uh, uh, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? And don't you know that's our, our custom, that's how we do it. Why don't they live according to the traditions of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Okay, well, Jesus's answer to them <clears throat> is, among other things, he talks about tradition and so forth. But then we get down to Mark 7, chapter four, uh, verse 14, and he says, uh, Jesus called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. And so later on, his disciples ask him about this. And so he gets into verse 18 and he says, do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile since it enters not the heart, but the stomach and it goes out into the sewer? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All these things come from within and they defile a person. 
Well, okay, so we can understand that mm -hmm. in English. And it looks mm -hmm. like a list of vices, and that was actually pretty common in some uh, in some of the literature of the time. Nothing horribly remarkable there, uh, except that I want to point out that in verse 22, what it actually says in Greek is a phrase mm -hmm. called uh, ophthalmos poneros. Well, if you've ever been to an ophthalmologist, ophthalmos is the Greek word for I, Poneris is the word for evil. In Greek, this says the evil eye. And almost every English translation translates it envy. Oh. <laughs> yes. Hmm. And so um, it's curious. And in studying this, and in, in, I've read several articles and books on this, and uh, also experienced it in travels in Southern Europe, there are places around the world that still believe in the evil eye. You can give somebody the evil eye, it's sort of like casting a hex on them. Um, and uh, it was, and there, and there are some cultures today where you don't wanna brag about your child because you'll, somebody will cast the evil eye on your child. And one theory about it, this is just a theory, it's not wholly writ, but one theory is that in a world where there was no social safety net to help the poor or the disadvantaged, uh, <clears throat> the evil eye operated in these cultures as a sort of social control to uh, adjust the, the relative relationships. So if the wealthy landowner um, needed to be sharing more of his goods, somebody would notice that, oh, well, two of your, your cattle died and then, oh, last week, three of your sheep died or a whole bunch of them did. I think you must have the evil eye. And then word would spread that that person had been had the evil eye. They'd had a hex put on them. And then so to purge the evil eye, the, um, the person, uh, would have to go and do benefactions in town. They'd have to give a giant feast that included meat for the whole place, or they would have to uh, uh, share their worldly goods. Well, that's one theory. And I have talked to some of my classmates um, from parts of Africa and the concept of evil eye still very much exists there. It exists in parts of Italy and uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, some remnants of it exist in uh, Ireland and in uh, Asia. In, in peasant cultures, there's still a, a real sense of the evil eye. And Jesus is saying the evil eye is an evil intention that comes out of the heart and it defiles a person. Well, put that in an English Bible and we're going, what? We don't know. We don't know from evil eye. So the translators into English saw ophthalmos poneros. They knew what those Greeks were, Greek words meant, but they, they translated not the words, but the idea, the principle, the concept that they thought English speakers would understand. Because in, in England, they don't really do the evil eye. And we don't hear in the United States and uh, we don't, you know, it, the English world does not really have a concept of the evil eye as being a real thing. But 
in Jesus' time in the, uh, in the ancient Near East and in the Mediterranean, they did. And so when our translators are, and this is, has always been this way in translations of scripture, we have tried to uh, produce into the receiving language the dynamic equivalent is the term that's used, the, the idea of what's being talked about. Well, now that involves some interpretation, doesn't it? It does. Uh, but they have tried to say, what did it mean in that culture? And we're going to translate that idea into English. <clears throat> now, this is not true with all, quote, religions of the book. Uh, there are segments of Judaism that believe that God, God's language was Hebrew. You know, before there was such a thing as Hebrews, God was writing in Hebrew, speaking in Hebrew, and God spoke in Hebrew and dictated to Moses and the compilers of the Torah and the prophets and all, in, in Hebrew. Well, in Islam, uh, there are many Muslims, and I, I think it still would be most Muslims, that say, no, 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 God's original language was Arabic. And so God dictated to Muhammad the prophet in Arabic and said, write, and by dictation, uh, the prophet wrote down in Arabic the words straight from the mouth of God. And so therefore, who could improve on God's speech and how God said what God wanted said? So therefore, anything puts it into another language is not the Quran, not the Quran. It's a, it's a commentary or a translation of the Quran, but it is not really the Quran because the Quran is what God wrote in Arabic through the prophets or God wrote to the prophets uh, through the prophets of the old Testament in Hebrew. But we in Christianity uh, I think almost exclusively understand that we do not have the original Greek manuscripts. And of course, the Greek had a little Aramaic in it here and there and so forth. But we don't have those original manuscripts. And even among the manuscripts that exist, there are slight little variations here and there. And so we trust that the Holy Spirit has, uh, as a gift from God, has preserved the manuscripts that we have for us and has guided uh, their preservation for us in uh, a way that it that will be uh, beneficial, beneficial, still authoritative for us, and it will serve God's purposes for us. But it is it has been translated to the consciousness, not only of those who wrote it down, like mm -hmm. Luke, and even Luke, you know, uh, uh, says, others have undertaken to, to write the story, and, uh, and I've looked at those, and now here's my version, you know. Um, so it, had, it was not an angel sitting on the shoulder. Here's the first verses of Luke. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, 
just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, uh, most excellent Theophilus. Okay, so he acknowledges he collected eyewitness stories. He had things passed down to him. That's the very word that we use for tra tradition, paradidomy, handing, handing something down. But uh, he knows others have written things down and he decided he would too. And so we trust though, that Luke was guided by the Holy Spirit and that even the translator somehow in ways that we cannot articulate as a proposition have been guided by the Holy Spirit that God cares for us enough to send the Spirit to lead us into a fuller understanding through the words that have been preserved for us. So therefore, we have, it is, it is fit, it is proper for us to look into what the translators have done and, and think about that. Okay, well with that little prayer, did you have a comment on that either of you? Had you ever read about the evil eye? I had never read about that before at all. That was fantastic. And, and as a, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? A preamble for what we're about to discuss. I think it's really important to bear that in mind because so much of what we see in, in scripture, it's, it's taken from their culture. That, that cultural context is so important. And when we miss that cultural context or we have a poor understanding of that cultural context, it can often lend itself to maybe less than ideal application on our part as readers. Because whenever we read the scriptures, we're not interpreting the scripture much the same way that a translator does. But whenever we read the scripture and then we take the meaning and decipher that meaning from scripture and we apply it to our lives, that is an exercise in interpretation in and of itself. So any conclusion that we reach from our good study of the word of God, from our good study of the Bible, any conclusion and application thereof is interpretation as it were. And we do our best work and we make the best applications when we consider the cultural and contextual milieu of the scriptures as we move forward with it. So Kevin, you got anything else you want to add before we dive into some of these questions? No, that was great. Okay, well, we'll just jump right in, and you'll hear me say uh, frequently, uh, well, let's, let's consider what did it mean, what did these words mean to those people at that time? What did yes. it mean to them at that time? Just like what did the evil eye coming out of you mean to those people at that time? <clears throat> okay, well, let, how about if we start at 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. And <clears throat> there are several parts to this, so uh, maybe your, re your readers will, your listeners will have it out in front of them, but I will just uh, read it because it, has se it raises several questions. Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the husband or man, it can be translated either way, is the head of his wife or woman, it could be translated either way, and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head, these disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. 
For if a woman will not veil herself, that she should cut off her hair, because it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God, but woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, but all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her sake, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, no dear, nor do the churches of God. There are many questions about this passage. The first one being, what is at issue here? Is it veils, long veils? Is it wearing a little hanky on your head? Is it about short and long hair? Is it about head covering coverings for women or for men or short hair for women? It, uh, it appears from my best reading that, and that of many before me, that women were praying and prophesying in the worship assemblies, in the church assembly, in the ecclesia, apparently with their heads uncovered. <clears throat> probably none of them have real short hair. I really doubt that. Uh, it was probably, it was with their heads uncovered and that's why he said she should wear a veil. So it seems to me that it's really about veiling. But then there's all these rationales for why and they're, they're pretty mysterious. Uh, Paul's argument because of the angels. What have either of you heard about that? What that might mean? There is a, that is a very large rabbit trail that we could get into. Um, there's quite a bit that I've read on that subject, but it's, it's all over the place. Um, some theories have to do with uh, Genesis 6 and the Nephilim. Some theories have to do with um, the angels and the hierarchy of authority of the angels under Christ, under God, etc. But there's there's a lot out there on it. And frankly, it's kind of hard to decipher, you know, which is the better reading or understanding of that passage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, some do think that this is referring to a commonly understood story really just briefly referenced in Genesis 6 about the sons of God uh, intermarrying with the daughters of men. And <clears throat> so you better cover up yourself or you might cause an angel to lust after you, something like that. Uh, but nobody really knows that that was mentioned in some of the um, apocryphal works that uh, like the book of Enoch and the book of the watchers and so forth. But they're not uh, in our canon of scripture. And so we're not really sure what those first auditors would have thought when they heard about because of the angels. Uh, <clears throat> and then we have this argument about doesn't nature itself tell you? Well, no, not really. I don't see that in the nature around me. Now, some I have read speculate that this 
nature really means more like uh, custom, the way we live. Uh, when I was a girl, I heard uh, lots of discussion about how the name of the church had to be Church of Christ because the church was the bride of Christ and what wife wouldn't take the name of her husband? I heard lots of arguments about that. And they and that was just given of, well, but of course, every wife takes the name of her husband. Well, that argument doesn't wash today. Um, so what was such an obvious argument back then from nature or from custom or as we all know, uh, has not has changed in just a short while. So we're not sure about this argument from nature. The, the way I see this passage is it's really a progression from um, a principle that's declared to a principle that's applied and then a clarification and then maybe a conclusion. So I would like to take us back to 1 Corinthians 10.23 right before this passage because <clears throat> as you know the uh, chapter divisions were added much later. They were not in the original. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking, beginning in verse 23, about how all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then he goes on, talks about meat bought in, in the marketplace and would somebody have qualms about whether it was offered to idols and, and so forth? And so he says in verse uh, 29, I mean, the other person's conscience, not your own. But why should my liberty be subject to the judgment of someone else's conscience? Uh, he says, but give no, in verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Just as I do that, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I think that is the uh, thesis statement, if you will, of this conversation, of this discussion. And what comes after is the applying of that principle. The principle is don't cause offense. You may have the liberty and the freedom to do something, but you may. there are times when you should not exercise it because it might be a stumbling block to the Jews and the Greeks who are the outsiders or to the body, someone in the body of Christ who has qualms about it. So yes, you can do anything, but some things you shouldn't do because of their effect. And so maybe this chapter 11, verses 3 through 10, is an example of perhaps a misused freedom. Maybe it was being used then and in that context. It was uh, disruptive to the Jews or Greeks on the outside and to uh, people in the church, some people in the church. So you may have that liberty, but... Uh, this is an example of how that liberty can be misused. And so then in chapter 11, verses 11 and 12 of 
1 Corinthians, uh, well, actually, in, down in verse, um, uh, yeah, it starts in 11 and 12, when Paul reminds them that, yes, but it's all interdependent. And then in, and he, he kind of restates the principle or clarifies it down in verse 16. And he says, but if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we don't have a custom about this, nor do the churches of God. So he basically says, sounds to me like he's saying, uh, y'all work it out, but be <laughs> in mutual respect for one another. Don't cause anybody uh, to stumble and don't uh, cause the church to be uh, spoken ill of. And that's how I read that. I cannot possibly tell you the, about because of the angels. Now, we, he does talk about the um, headship, and that too has been a source of discussion and controversy because just as in English, head can uh, have a range of meanings, and it can be uh, literally uh, the thing on top of your shoulders and your neck uh, that contains your brain, although I don't know if they really had a word for brain, but, uh, but yes, that's where the thinking went on. Uh, but it can also mean the source or the origin, like the headwaters of the Nile or of a river or something. And so it can mean um, the one in control, or it can mean the one who originates things. And of course, Christ fits that bill in, in uh, both meanings, uh, both senses of the word. Uh, so I think taking in the context of both what's around this in the scripture where Paul has just been saying don't use your liberty to cause someone else to stumble just because you can doesn't mean you should uh, then he goes on and says but we're all interdependent and we don't have this this is just a uh, we have no such custom so, so, he did, so go ahead I was going to say, so in this sense, what we're getting at in in terms of egalitarianism is that this was very much a cultural consideration that was embedded within the culture in Corinth. And and so often, and I think you alluded to this whenever you were discussing um, interpretation and translation, so often we tend to mistake the cultural trappings in which the truthful principles are embedded for the truth itself, which is why you still have some fringe groups within Christendom, within Christianity, who do insist on wearing the veil or who do insist on wearing the, you know, the, the doily or, or whatever on their head as a symbol of that authority, because in their mind, the symbol is, is irremovable or irreplaceable from the uh, truth in, from which that um, symbol is is taken and i may have just butchered all that i may have said it backwards but but i think you get the idea of what i'm i'm getting at here so in terms of egalitarianism this is a passage in which paul is basically saying we are all free if we allude back to to galatians and the principle he taught there that we are all free. There is no male or female in Christ Jesus any longer. But if you fully behave in this egalitarian way, it's going to cause some, some trouble for the church. There are people that are going to look at you and give you the side eye, maybe even the evil eye because <laughs> of your freedom. And they're not going to appreciate your freedom very much. And it's going to cause 
potentially some concern and some havoc for the church in and of itself and lead to issues. So in that sense, with all of this, y'all figure it out. You guys figure out how you should conduct yourselves, but this is something you need to take into consideration. Would that be a fair summary of, of the egalitarian point, for lack of a better term, for 1 Corinthians 11? It certainly is. And again, starting back in 1 Corinthians, the last of 1 Corinthians 10, where that thesis statement is, don't use your liberty to uh, injure someone else, uh, either inside or outside the church. And so it is very much a respect for the eternal principle there of uh, consider the others and uh, you know, forego anything that uh, if you're going to rather than cause harm to someone else. We're going to get into that. Uh, well, the other part of the context there outside the chapter of 1 Corinthians 11, going back to the prior chapter and the whole setting, then we also have the cultural context. And we know mm -hmm. that... Um, uh, what having short hair or shaved head might have uh, connoted in that culture. Uh, we know that even today, there are some uh, believers in Christ that think women have to have long hair and it's a sin not to, and they'll wear it all up in a little bun and with a snood over it or something. And um, I'm not sure we have very many that would say a man having long hair is a sin, but um uh, but there may there may be some, but we don't get all worked up over that. Uh, Not as worked up anyway. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Well, Linda, okay. I, I wanted to to back 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 up to First Corinthians eleven, and just to for clarification's sake. So you you're from my from what I'm hearing, you're saying that the pot one possible way of understanding First Corinthians eleven, specifically starting in verse three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That that's always been used, at least in the churches that I when I where I was raised to talk about authority. And from from what you said, it, it's could be the case that this is not speaking about of a authoritative position as much as just the source of where woman came from. That that. Uh, that, that man is the source of woman, would that be a accurate way of putting it? Uh, that, is one, that is one reading of it. And I don't think you have to believe, uh, subscribe to that source as headship um, as uh, in order to be, uh, have an egalitarian understanding. But that is one source of it that is based on uh, an appropriate reading of the term headship. However, uh, even if you say uh, that Christ is the head of the church and rules over it, the just as is, it's an example, it's an analogy, it's um, an illustration, and it is not the principle, is, is what I would say the egalitarians would say. <clears throat> uh, particularly in this, uh, in this context, because... Um, we can't really know what was talking about with the whole angel bit and uh, and even with the uh, even with the arguments about um, let me turn back here uh, the woman being created for the sake of man as if that ought to um, as if that ought to settle it or even saying the woman is the 
the man is the reflection of God, but the woman is the reflection of the man. That doesn't exactly jibe with the Genesis picture of male and female created he, him. Now, the woman was created in the, in the Genesis account, the woman was created because it wasn't good for man to leave a uh, need alone and he needed a helper, he needed an easer, but um, not that she was going to be the reflection of him to, uh, so you have to read, our, I, I consider that we have to read this in light of the whole picture. Well, and it's interesting because in, in the context there of First Corinthians chapter, in the context of First Corinthians chapter 11, where, because because I'm just reading this as you're talking, and it even says in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. And so there seems right there to be equality, but also it says, for as one was made for man, so now man is born or made from woman. And so for someone to try to use this passage and appeal to creation to show that that, that males have authority over females or the husband has authority over a wife from this passage. I know we're going to be getting into some other passages, but from this passage, it actually seems to be saying the opposite in first Corinthians mm-hmm. 11, because it seems to be saying, well, okay. Uh, you know, woman we're came from man, yeah. but, but then now, uh, you know, uh, we see man comes from woman. And so it's kind of this perpetual equality that we see. And, uh, and, and personally, I think that, I lean more towards the idea of the source argument um, because I feel like that's what where Paul's getting at with that verse here, you know, starting with verse 11. And when you back that up to, to where he, Paul's talking about that in verse three and even linguistically um, in my studies, once again, from, you know, this is just from my very brief studies on this. I've not done a, a whole lot of in-depth research, but looking at that word, even in the Septuagint, um, the, the, the word used there is, is never a word that means a, uh, authority or very rarely does it mean authority. Um, and so it's, you know, that's, that's something else that's interesting to me is that when you just see that word, this, we've kind of energy, we, we've, we've interjected that word authority where it actually isn't there. It, it's, it's just not there. And so we've kind of just baked that concept in, in our reading. When you actually read this, it seems like Paul within context is saying the exact opposite. If I'm reading this correctly, especially in verse 11, where Paul's basically saying, well, okay, here's all these things, but nonetheless, you know, uh, man, woman came from man, but now man comes from woman. <laughs> and so Paul's kind of uh, graying this up a bit, if I'm reading this correctly. Right. And then we really didn't get into and probably don't have time to, but there's this question about, are we, is this about husbands and wives or about all men and all women, Mm -hmm. you know? So is somebody else's husband, the ruler or uh, the head over me? Uh, I have a husband. (laughs) And and what if I didn't, you know? Uh, So how much of this is um, they're kind of, their cultural understanding and, and um, it's just very hard. It's very hard to parse out. So we have to take all the totality of these scriptures and then see if we can uh, give uh, honor them all by giving them, they don't have to be in, in uh, uh, unison, but they all have to depict the same principle. 
and I think we're going to get there if we if we go on just a little bit. Uh, therefore, it's fitting, I think, if we go on to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35, it's short, so I'll read it. Uh, in the NRSV, it says, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, here's we get it. Here we get into some of the uh, translation questions and the range of meanings in certain words. The word for uh, subordinate in, in Greek is hupotasso, uh, and that means submissive to submit one's self. It doesn't mean for someone else to submit you with a, a hammer or um, a Dixon Bible on your head. It means <laughs> that you um, you submit. And but it's interesting. It says uh, women should be silent. Okay, the, many translations translate it silent. But guess what? That same word is used in First Timothy chapter two, where it says, uh, I would that everywhere men would pray. We need to pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Same word, lead a quiet life. Does it mean never talk? No, uh, it means don't, don't live, don't be disruptive. Don't live uh, in chaos. Uh, live a peaceful and quiet life. Settle down. And in fact, related to this is um, is in Mark 4 when Jesus quieted the storm. It's a related word where he told the waves, uh, quiet, be still. In other words, calm down, uh, be calm. Well, in first in first Timothy 2.11, we just read where in the early part of the chapter, that word is translated, live a peaceful and quiet life. In the same chapter, in 1 Timothy 2.11, it says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Okay, so if we're supposed to, if, if it means silence in verse 11, does it mean silence in verse 2, where we're supposed to live quiet lives? Probably it means don't be disruptive. Don't be uh, make a lot of racket and cause chaos. Uh, live, live peaceful and orderly lives, and don't be disruptive. <clears throat> In First Thessalonians four eleven, it says, "Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you." Well, again, this is one of those passages where. Uh, in that culture, men worked with their hands, you know. Uh, well, what if you just work with your brain? What if you sit at a computer and you do, and you don't even uh, touch mm -hmm. the, that keyboard? Are you sitting? No, we understand that this is a principle of do your labor, mind your own business, lead a quiet, non-disruptive life, and bring honor and not shame on the, on the church of God. And so... Uh, that appears to be uh, addressing what was happening in the church in Corinth. And it appears that there were 
women who use their newfound freedom, uh, not only to come and listen and be educated, which was a pretty new, remarkable thing, but even to speak, to pray and to prophesy. And so they had, I really doubt most of them had studied uh, at the foot of Jesus or anybody else. And so uh, they were just kind of blathering on and disruptive. And it sounded like they were causing uh, disorder and chaos. And of course, we all know about uh, let all things be done decently and in order. So my point is here in 1 Corinthians 14 about women should be silent in the churches. That is a translation choice. And the word could just as easily mean quiet, calm, non-disruptive. Now it does go on and say they're not permitted to, uh, to speak, but should be submissive, should submit themselves. But we know, of course, they did speak because they prayed and they prophesied. And I presume that involved vocal cords and air pushing over the vocal cords. Not, not even to mention singing, but they, but they, they spoke. But they, uh, so this can't mean utter silence. Um, if I may, I'd like to ask a question and also make a comment, if, if that's okay. Sure. And I, I don't want to get too far afield, but one of the things that's interesting to me to note, whenever you read Paul's discourse in this section of 1 Corinthians, he's making corrections to the behavior that some of those Corinthian people are engaging in. And you have a, a several people, and I'm, I'm just going off the cuff here. I'd have to take a look at it because I haven't looked at it in a while. But you have several people that are being disruptive. You have tongue speakers that are being disruptive. And Paul tells them, you need to quit being disruptive. If you don't have anyone there to interpret, you're not edifying anybody. So you need to just sit down and keep it to yourself and quit being disruptive. And it seems as though this is, it's sort of the same thing that's being stated to some of these women. They're being disruptive. It's not a prohibition against preaching. It's not a prohibition against teaching. It's a prohibition. Absolutely, it's a prohibition, but it's against disruptive behavior rather than preaching or teaching. Um, a question that I had, though, and I'm, I'm sure you've, you've probably heard of this, is the idea that some people um, state that verses 34 and 35 are an interpolation, that that is something that has been added to the text after the fact. Based on your study of this, is there any merit to that, or is that something even worth considering or worth giving the time of day in your mind? Uh, you will find that in occasionally in uh, in scholarly works, and the uh, same is true um, uh, of one of the other passages. Uh, I think in um, maybe in Timothy, part of it seems has been speculated to have been an addition an addition later, but I think it's quite possible that this really was going on there. And Paul really did have to address it. And he told them to sit down and hush. Um, and if they want to know something, ask their husbands at home. I don't think it was a principle for eternity uh, or a prohibition for eternity. Uh, if it was, it might have been a little more well-reasoned because what about the ones that didn't have husbands at home? Uh, what about the widows? What about the uh, young unmarried women? Um, so I think it's just saying, uh, and, and it may be that some of these uh, married women were even contradicting their husbands or commenting on what their husbands were, 
were saying in church. I don't know. It just sounds like Paul was addressing a specific problem at a specific time and place and not laying down an eternal principle. Now, when he says it is shameful, uh, this was an honor-shame culture, as you know, uh, or you've probably encountered that before. And uh, it was, there were strict understandings in the broader culture about what would bring honor to a person. And it was all about getting honor and avoiding shame. And we tend to read over that because in our culture, we're not so honor, honor shame uh, based, although we do say uh, to some people who are bold uh, or even brash, have you no shame? So there's a little residue of that even in our understanding today. <clears throat> but uh, I don't think that Paul is laying down here an eternal principle because if he, if he was, and it was as broad as some people think, read it to be, uh, it would contradict what he says elsewhere about mind how you pray and prophesy. Be, be careful for how that looks. So let's go on to the uh, next one because these are all related. I'm not just uh, uh, trying to rush through them, but I think we will see a, a pattern or a, re, uh, a certain symmetry and uh, similarity here. Well, and Linda, I will interrupt too for a moment to revisit something that you had said and Lee had brought up too, because, you know, when people are talking about this specific topic, they really want to focus in on just those two verses without realizing that Paul was had had previously just been getting on to the men too who were interrupting and who were not um, submitting to one another in the in the sense of uh, you know interrupting and not not letting the other speak. And so this isn't just this wasn't just a female. Uh, issue. This wasn't just something that was restricted to the females. This is something that Paul was dealing with throughout this chapter of of both male and female. And it doesn't really seem to be a male female issue as much as it does, as Lee pointed out, just those inter you know everyone interrupting <laughs> each other and not letting the individual speak. And you know, I think that that is such a, a powerful point when you're looking at the whole context of the letter because it's easy to take one or two verses and just isolate those verses, remove them out of their context, and then put them on a meme and share it and say, well, the Bible says that that settles it without really looking at the deeper context here. And, and you know, Paul seems to do this a lot because I used to mock the idea of, of explaining something as cultural. And the more I started studying, I realized that the Bible is truly a book of culture. I mean, there is so much cultural accommodation that Paul oftentimes gives what we would see as conflicting instruction to different churches, even within the same decade or so, uh, because he's dealing with different problems. I mean, there are times when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's talking about circumcision and he is telling them that they do not need to be circumcised. And then he's, he, you know, he has Timothy circumcised. And you look at that and if you look at it as Christian constitution and try to put it side by side, it's it's a clear contradiction, but when you realize the Bible's not written like a Christian constitution, it's not written like a rule book. It's written as letters addressing different situations in different times for different reasons in different locations, and even within the same time period, it's sometimes ad addressing different churches in different areas that would be dealing with different problems. And so, 
I think that this has a lot of merit to it, what you're saying, and that if most Christians would just take a few steps back and read these letters that Paul is writing or did write to these different churches, they would find that there's a lot of times Paul does give different instruction on how to handle certain things. And even the idea of going back to does nature, doesn't nature itself teach that it's shameful, shameful for a man to have long hair? Well, if I'm a Jew, no. The answer to that question is a clear-cut no, because when I when if, if when I'm studying scripture, and especially if I was a Jew, and I've actually spoken to some Jews about this, when they would think about long hair, by and large, they would think of the Nazarite vow. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and the Nazarite vow was anything but shameful. That was considered an above reproach high, high, high level vow that you would take as a Jew, as a male, not to cut your hair. That was not shameful. And that vow was was continuing on. Many people think Paul himself even took that vow, which really makes this an interesting topic to consider. And, uh, you know, I think about when, when Paul writes and tells, uh, you know, says, I, I want you to lead a quiet life. Well, who's he writing that to? He's writing that to the, to the churches in Thessalonica, right? Well, imagine listening to that letter and then being in the crowd and being a member at the church of Thessalonica when um, he was accused of turning the world upside down and he had to leave because they were after him. And and you're thinking, wait a minute, this, this guy's telling me to lead a quiet life. And he's the same guy that turned the world upside down and caused the most havoc that we've probably ever seen any Christian calls. And so when you start to look at these incidences in scripture and, and pull them together, if, if you try to create a coherent picture, it just doesn't work. And that's why the Bible has to be read, you know, as, as you explained earlier, by looking at these different situations, by looking at the authorial intent, by looking at the purposes, by looking at what is going on in that particular letter, in that particular time, in that particular place. I mean, it, it, it just, it, it, it baffles me now how I was taught to read the scripture and how it was so wrong. I mean, it, regardless of some of the conclusions, just the way I was taught to read the scripture, it causes chaos and confusion. And what you're doing is you're bringing clarity by looking at these within their context to try to figure out, okay, what's really happening here and how do we apply this to the bigger picture of the, of the scripture and the narrative arc here? Well, thank you, Kevin, for bringing that up because it reminds me of another uh, interpretive principle that <clears throat> hermeneutical principle that uh, I didn't mention and you've alluded to it and that is we have to understand our expectations of the text and part of that is knowing what genre genre we're reading mm-hmm. and so with my students uh, at, at uh, divinity school uh, I would sometimes put up a PowerPoint and said tell me what it is you think we're looking at here and then I'd give a little lo- opening line it would be uh, uh, there once was a lass from Topeka and they go oh 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 that's a limerick or I'd say uh, add one half cup nuts and stir and they go well that's a recipe and then I'd say um, let's see dearly beloved we're gathered here in the side of God and these witnesses oh well that's a wedding or maybe it's a funeral but you know that's a you know or I would say and, and I would go through this list of things and I uh, like uh, my love is like a red, red rose or how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And they would go, uh, well, that's that's poetry. Or I would say, um, let's see, um, 
baby, you want to ride in my car? And they go, well, that sounds like a pickup line or a song lyric or something like that. And they, they understood that there are different genres and we bring different expectations of what we're going to see when we encounter those genres. And you wouldn't look to the Bible to be a recipe book uh, or some people have. You've probably seen those loaves of bread, scripture bread. On the yeah, and if you've ever if you've tried that bread, that is enough to convince anyone that the Bible <laughs> should not be used as a recipe book. <laughs> that, that Ezekiel bread is the most unscriptural bread I've ever eaten. <laughs> so I think one of your prior speakers and one of your prior lectures uh mentioned the and it's a it's a now understood and uh, popular saying but when we read the new testament uh, the new testament particularly the epistles the letters we're reading other people's mail mm -hmm. and so it doesn't mean it wasn't preserved by the holy spirit for our benefit but part of handling that scripture aright is to say what was we don't have the other end of the correspondence we don't know what exactly the problem was. We do a couple of places, you know, in Corinth, the man was sleeping with his stepmother or something. And, uh, but usually we do not know the specifics of the problem that Paul is addressing. So we have to read between the lines and try to use some discernment there to figure out what is being talked about in this mail and what situation is being addressed. And I shudder to think about some of the letters I have written to my adult children. Uh, if someone got a hold of them and didn't know the context and the backstory, and so that's what uh, that's what we have to do with the Pauline epistles. It doesn't mean they're not uh, scripture and they're not preserved for our learning, but to handle them properly, we need to consider that they are just that. They are epistles. They follow epistolary conventions of how. A Greek letter writing went on. They start with a salutation and they start with this and greetings and then they kind of give a, try to build some rapport with the art. They follow these certain conventions that the readers then, the first readers would have understood. And then, uh, and then generally most of them put the meat of the letter in there, particularly any rebukes. And then it ends up with a, a blessing and, and some goodwill at the end. And this is, you know, uh, this is how they wrote letters. Well, you don't look at it as something other than that letter. And we try to discern the wisdom and uh, and the principles, the divine principles out of that. Well, okay. one of the issues, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, go no, go ahead. Well, well I was just going to say, well, that would be a great way to sort of circle back around to um, what we were taking into consideration 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, because so often we want to extrapolate that from its context and say, this is a blanket statement that applies to all churches for all time. Women can't preach, but that's not within the context of what Paul's talking about. It's not within the context of his letter. It's not within the context of the point that he's making, especially in terms of it contradicting what he had already said in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding praying and prophesying in a public setting as they were gathered together. But in that sense, <clears throat> what sense do we make of Ephesians 5, where Paul speaks to headship, and he speaks in, in some of those terms related to the marriage relationship? Because that is a point of contention 
that a lot of folks will make whenever they speak out against an egalitarian perspective. Okay, well, let's start again. <clears throat> Let me open up my Ephesians 5, but let's start and look at the context in the scriptures because there really is a thesis statement here too. Uh, I'm sorry, I should have had it open here. <clears throat> Ephesians 5.21 is what I believe is the thesis statement for this whole Pauline passage in this letter. <clears throat> Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the topic sentence, the thesis sentence, and everything that comes after that is an example of what I mean, of what the author means. And... Uh, these are sometimes called uh, household codes, and they were not—they uh, were not a rare entity, even in uh, secular writing about the duties and responsibilities of uh, slaves and masters and husbands and children. <clears throat> but uh, here, Paul pretty much reshapes them, reframes them under uh, his argument his command really to be subject to one another. It is a matter of mutual submission. And then he goes through and gives illustration after illustration after illustration. So uh, in verse 22, where you were talking about Lee, it says wives be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. The actual verb be subject to is not there. It is not it is not in the Greek. Oh, uh, wow. uh, that's right. Uh, it says um, it, it gives a uh, it's a clause. So be subject to one another uh, out of reverence for Christ. Wives uh, 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 to your husbands, and then it go it'll go on and say uh, slaves to your uh, uh, children to your parents, fathers to your children, uh, slaves to your earthly masters. And there are some words of obedience in there. But my point is, these are the, the verse 22 is actually a continuation of verse 21. It's not a separate sentence with a separate verb that says be subject to or obey or submit to or something like that. It says be in 21, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as you are to the Lord. So it clearly, clearly is a continuation and the first explication and example of that mutual submission that, that I believe is the topic sentence and the eternal principle. Uh, we don't, we, we even the most... Um, rigid reading of this passage uh, would not say that it means exactly what it says because in verse 24 it says wives ought to be subject to their husbands just as the church is subject to Christ be subject to in everything to their husbands nobody really argues that if your husband said go hold up that bank and if anybody resists you murder the guards 
No one, <laughs> nobody believes that you should obey that. So we already make an exception. We say, well, yeah, I know it says in everything, but it doesn't really mean in everything. It, this assumes the mutuality of Christian husband and wife. Uh, and so then it goes on and says something even more radical about husbands loving your wives uh, just as Christ lo loved the church and gave himself up from, for her. Well, you can imagine what a, what a shocking extreme uh, requirement that is. Uh, and then in the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. And uh, th so there's a lot of just as, just as, just as here. And it gets to verse 32. This is a great mystery. And I am applying it to Christ in the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself and a wife should respect her husband. And then it goes on. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And then it goes to um, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Um, I just can't have to give a little personal uh, footnote. When I was, I think I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, and I was uh, a particularly precocious brat at the time. And I remember quoting this verse to my dad uh, when he had just aggravated me or provoked me to anger on my, you know, my last nerve. And, uh, and I remember saying, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. King James, to anger, and um, and I think when I picked myself up off the floor, <laughs> I decided to re I decided to hold that understanding, keep that uh, in my heart, treasure that in my heart, and not present it to my father. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, uh, so he goes on to talk about children, duties of children, and fathers, and slaves, and earthly masters. And, you know, even in uh, chapter six, verse nine, masters do the same for them rem uh, uh, so that we'll all receive the same uh, from the Lord, whether we're slaves or free. Uh, for with the master, we all have the same master in heaven and with him is there, there's no partiality. Well, nobody reads that part of these household codes or these prescriptions as an endorsement of the system of slavery. They have earlier in our country's history, these verses were quoted, but we understand today that is not meant to uh, endorse a system of oppression. Yeah, and that that's something too that I wanted to, to bring up a little bit and just make a few comments about and give some commentary and see what your thoughts are because we, we ended the last episode talking about Galatians 3.28 and this idea of how we, we see at, you know, at least four times in Paul's writings where he gives this equality of social status and how many Christians have just limited that to a spiritual reality instead of a social reality, not in the world per se, but in the kingdom. It's, that's the way it should be. Um, that's that's what we should be striving for, and not not that there's not going to be literally, you know, not that a Jew and Gentile no longer exist, or that a male or female no longer exist, but that that social status um, of that that once existed that was a a wall between the the parallels that are being made and are that's now been taken down, and that doesn't exist anymore. 
and the slavery text, that's what's so important to me because th- this, this was a huge, huge point in my study. Uh, Lee and I've talked about this a little bit and I, I've read several books on this, just the, the parallel specifically when looking at slavery, when you read all of the, the, par- the text about slaves need to obey their masters it's within the same context also of where Paul is telling that telling wives to obey their husbands. And I mean, we see this in like Titus, for example, Titus two, three through five and Ephesians in uh, Titus two, eight and nine. And then we see it in Ephesians five. You just read it here in, um, you know, 22 and 24 and Ephesians six, five through nine. And then also first Peter three, one through six and first Peter two, 18 and 19. And so that there is, in my opinion, whatever you say about the slavery text, you have to use the same line of reasoning. I won't even say you have to say the same thing, but there has to be the same line of reasoning. And I don't know of anyone who today argues that passages such as, um, you know, first Peter should, should be enforced that, you know, people want to downplay it and say, well, the slavery in the first century was not like our 19th century slavery. And that's true in a lot of cases, but slavery in the first century was still something that no one would really want to be a part of. And we've tried to, um, and I used to do this myself. And then I started actually studying the the context, and I started studying these this extra biblical material to see what slavery was really like. And there's a reason why Paul is having to tell the Christians in Ephesus not to use force or to threaten their slaves. It's because that was a natural part of what you did. If you were a slave owner and your slave wasn't behaving, you would threaten them. And that word there, Paul uses threaten, is is always connected with some sort of violence. I don't know about you, but I've never worked for someone who has threatened me with physical violence if I didn't get my papers in on time at work, you know, to, to well, come try, work for me and we'll fix <laughs> that. To, to, to try and take the concept of, of master and slave in the first century and reduce it down to nothing more than a modern day employee employer relationship does so much disservice to the historical context of slavery within the first century, not saying it's a direct parallel tonight to, to 19th century slavery at all. I understand there, you know, I, I I've had several conversations with some friends. I said, I understand there's a, a big difference, but at the same time, we should never minimize the slavery of the first century in which, by the way, the Bible, the, the no one in the new Testament ever comes right out and says, you should not own slaves. Whereas today, we would say you should not own slaves. We, we, we believe that. And so when you look at this trajectory that I think is being set in Scripture, Paul is doing the best he can to wrestle with how to apply this in a world where slavery is still a reality, a world where uh, th- this is still dominated by this patriarchal system. So he, he's still working within those bounds. And even in Ephesians, what I see Paul doing, is, is as you put it, is he is properly explaining what this should look like, what, what this, what this male female relationship in this marriage should look like. And this is, this is the kind of love. It should be a mutual submission. And, and here's something else, um, Linda, that I, I would love to hear your thoughts on because I noticed the inconsistency in my own arguments when, when I used to, um, be at a different place theologically than I am now. 
And, you know, I would go to places like Titus 2.5, talk about how women are to be subject to their husbands and they're to be homemakers. And I'd go to passages such as Ephesians 5 and Colossians 2 and 1 Peter 3.4 that talk about women are to be gentle and quiet spirits and how they're to obey their husbands in everything, uh, as you pointed out in Ephesians 5, 20 th- 22 through 24. But when you actually take those passages and say to anybody, do you really believe this is how a husband-wife relationship is to work, I can guarantee you they're going to say no. I, I don't know of a single person. I don't know of a single woman. I've never met of a single woman ever who calls her husband Lord. And yet that's the example Peter gives in First Peter 3, 4 and says, well, hey, you know what? This is, you know, women are to obey their husbands in everything. And uh, just just like Sarah did, she called her husband Lord. And, and, and when he said that we need to move, she moved with him. And when you look within context, if you're going to be consistent with your argumentation and say that I believe that we have to follow the New Testament in the specifics of how women are to obey their husbands, well, if you're going to do that, at least be consistent and follow through with it, because the New Testament presents a very specific framework in some of these passages, specifically 1 Peter 3, 4, of, of how it's speaking of a wife obeying her husband. And when we move away from that framework in a new trajectory, then it seems hard, if not impossible, to continue to argue for that type of headship found within some of these passages without arguing how the Bible defines that specific headship. It just seems like it's, a, it's very contradictory because, you know, I've had conversations with friends. They say, well, I think Titus 2.5, the Bible clearly says women are, sub, sub, you know, to, to be subject to their husbands. They're to be homemakers. I said, well, do you, is your wife a homemaker? Well, yeah, I mean, she, she, you know, yeah. I said, well, do you do anything with a house? Well, yeah, I help out and stuff. And well, does your wife work? Yeah, she has a full-time job. And well, if you're going to be, you know, you're going to be literal to the context, then that would be a violation. Same thing with first Peter, Peter three, four and Ephesians five, 22 and 24. So, you know, it's just this idea that it seems like people still want to hang, hang their, their hats on this idea of, of males, specifically husbands having authority over, but then pragmatically, they can never give you an example of what that means. And that's why it seems like most of that has always been uh, within the church of, you know, a woman not being able to preach or teach because within the home, um, you know, it, 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 that's just not what, what I see. Even those who believe in that view, they're not being consistent in carrying that out. I mean, I know many husbands who are the, who are the stay-at-home husbands. They're the stay-at-home dads, and their, their wives are very ambitious, and they want to go out and have a job, and they make enough money where the husband doesn't have to work, and he can stay at home with the kids, and he takes care of the, the house. Well, that's a reversal of Titus 2.5, but some people who I know would argue for complementarianism would at the same time have no problem with with that example of the husband being the stay at home father. Well, I try to hold their feet to the fire and say, you kind of have to have a problem with that. If you're going to take this literally, I mean, if you're, if you're really going to apply this. And so that's why I just see there's so much inconsistency in how people will say, Oh no, slavery is bad. You know, we shouldn't have slaves. And then you go to passages where Paul and Peter are talking about slaves and go, well, that was in that time period culturally. And, there was a trajectory that was being set forth, and we know now because there's no Jew or Gentile, even more so, that that's something that we shouldn't involve ourselves with. But yet we want to take the male and female, and we want to just hold it there. We want to keep it there and say it doesn't move forward. All these other 
uh, parallels that Paul is talking about in, in society and in the home and in the church, those are to move forward with history. And, and we should continue to set that trajectory. But when it comes to male and female, that trajectory, we, we don't need to set that trajectory too far. But it seems like Paul's already doing that uh, from what you said. And from my studies in Ephesians 5, where he's already kind of redeveloping what that means, just as he was with Philemon, for example, and Onesimus. And he's he's not saying that, hey, now there should be no slavery, because I don't think he could have done that in that context. I think that in and of itself could have caused more problems. Um, but I think that he was setting forth that trajectory. So I would, I said a lot there, <laughs> but I'm just kind of curious to see, I mean, do you think that I'm off just entirely on that? Or what are some of your comments on that? Well, no, I think you've said it and said it well and brought in a number of things. I, I, uh, I do think that when we, uh, that even looking at things historically, like say, uh, uh, on the prairie, on the American frontier, <laughs> a, a, a husband might go off for weeks or months um, hunting, trapping, taking the cattle or whatever, and the, the woman was there uh, working by the sweat of her brow, and uh, uh, she wasn't just reading, uh, I don't want to trivialize uh, homemaking because I think it's a, a, a wonderful um, uh, domain of life but she wasn't doing things that we would consider traditional wifey things in a post-world war ii most of us think of being a homemaker as being like uh on the sitcoms you know on Donna Reed where you're just there in the kitchen and you make cookies for the kids after class well no the the division of labor was never quite as uh, uh, rigid as we fantasized that it was. Um, and there were, <clears throat> there were many women who had to work either in business like uh, Lydia or other, uh, other businesses. I mean, actually, if you read Proverbs 31, it's describing a, a literal uh, wife there and not just an ideal wife. Uh, she was a businesswoman buying and selling goods and doing all this kind of So, you know, we've sort of uh, snatched at things to formulate sort of this um, fictional role of, uh, well, homemakers over here and business and earn a living is over here. And it's never been um, quite that separate. I would like to go on since you mentioned, uh, uh, I think you mentioned, uh, well, both Timothy and Peter. Let's talk about those quickly because I know we don't have a great deal of time left. But um, in First Timothy, the uh, the quote troublesome passage is in First Timothy two, uh, <clears throat> eleven through fifteen, and it says, "Let a woman learn in silence with full submission." I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Uh, it could say what that could say wife and husband. That's a translation issue. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Well, this passage, a couple of things, observations. Uh, this one passage has been interpreted to mean everything from 
women cannot speak at all in church. Be silent means no sound. To women cannot teach adult males. And so if somebody in your Sunday school class is baptized, you're out of there as a teacher, um, even though uh, he's a 12 year old boy uh, or to women that cannot even teach their own husbands. Um, they're not to um, have authority over man, so hush. Um, but again, I would say we have taken this little pericope, this little passage, we've, we've put the cutting lines of the boundary a little too close in. So let's look at the biblical context. And I would say that if we start back at 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, <clears throat> Uh, the author is saying, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without argument or uh, anger or argument, and also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. And then it goes on about the Adam and Eve bit and save through childbirth. Okay, I say this is, uh, this is the larger biblical context. And that is, look how, you're, uh, look how, you, look how it looks. Look what you're saying with your behavior and your conduct to those outside the church and to those inside the church. And so the men are supposed to uh, pray, lifting up holy hands. All right, do you think it's a command that men have to raise their hands in prayer? Have you ever been to a congregation that said that is a command, an eternal principle? I don't think so. Um, even though that's what the author suggests. No, and I, I, ironically, oops, I don't know, got some feedback here. Um, ironically, that was something that we were taught not to do because we didn't want to look too much like other churches. So, you know, even though Paul said we need to do it, not only did we not do it, we, we would say it was wrong for people who did <laughs> right. what the Bible said, for lack of better words. I've always, I have always found that ironic. Well, I don't think this is a this posture is an eternal command. Sure, uh, no. I consider it a cultural thing, you know, because uh, there there was in uh, Jewish art, and so we think it happened in the synagogue that that, uh, that men raised their hands. They were the orant was the term. They raised their hands in in prayer and in supplication to God. And so uh, this is just a, a, a cultural reference. But the without anger or argument is not. I would say that's a principle because that would that would that would be disgraceful. That would not look good if you're in there bickering. Uh, and then the women should dress in modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls. Okay. Again, the same question. How many people uh, who? would say it is a sin to wear gold braided hair or pearls. Of course we don't say that. Now there, uh, there might be some few people that still read this literally, but most of us read this with that question of 
Well, this is because of what did it mean in that culture? What did it mean to those original listeners or readers of this letter? And behaving that way with gold and fancy, fancying yourself up with gold braided hair and pearls, that's just an example of the principle that's there, which is consider how your conduct looks to outsiders. What are you saying about the church of God, the church of the Christ, the church of the Lord, if you uh, parade in there trying to uh, trick yourself up like a Grecian goddess or something with all this uh, fancy work um, and instead clothe yourself with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence. And so this is just leads right on into uh, let the woman learn in silence or quietness uh, and don't get up and exercise authority over the men. And uh, since we're talking about uh, where the men are praying, I again read this as uh, the, the conduct of women in the assembly. We're talking about behavior where people are watching them. Um, and I would not read this as saying uh, a woman cannot teach ever or have authority over any man in business or elsewhere in the National Guard, in the uh, boardroom of the corporation, in the, um, in the college classroom. I think this is, was talking about the, the worship assembly and also because that's where the praying was going on. And also that it's addressing how that looked in that time and place. So it's all of a piece and it starts back in, uh, in verse eight rather than just the women's thing. Now the bit about Adam and the order of creation, I find that a real mystery because um, the creation order seems to be of ascending complexity and who was created first, Adam or Eve? Well, it was Adam, it was the man. So Eve, if it's, if it's superiority, man over beast and beast over plant or whatever and then there's Eve there at the top of the chain if you're going to go by some sort of hierarchy based on the order of creation I don't even see how that that makes Paul's point or who you know who was writing first Timothy I don't see how it makes his point um similarly Adam was deceived and not the woman well what big credit is that he sinned willfully and she was mis misled. Uh, so I can't see how that's some virtue. Now, it might be uh, saying, it might be an allusion to, uh, an allusion, not illusion, an allusion to the uh, understanding that, uh, that they would have had that um, women are not educated and they are easily misled and, and, um, duped or swept away uh, by tales and maybe that's so if you've ever watched a soap opera you might get that <laughs> but um, no well, and that, and that's that's something linda if, if you don't mind me interrupting you for in. a moment uh that is something that i a few things and i've got a couple of questions for you on this too mm -hmm. on what the complementarian view would argue and just see how you would respond to that but 
Uh, before I ask that, I, I did want to bring that up because you do have Paul talking about, um, you know, when he's, when he's writing to uh, Timothy about women being gullible and you, you have a lot, Lee and I have done several episodes on uh, the Bible and ancient science and how the Bible just presupposes certain things. Paul believes in a three-tiered universe, or at least he, uh, he, he just presupposes that's the way it is. That's the way that they understood things. And of course, uh, uh, people for, for years believed that. They believed in geocentrism because of uh, what, how the Bible presents the, the cosmos. And we now know that that's not true. And so it's allowed us to understand some of those passages to, to figure out, okay, what's really the goal of these passages? Was it to teach science? No. So when Paul is making some of these assumptions, we now know enough about psychology that there is no evidence that females by nature are more gullible than men. There's no evidence to prove that. And um, so so we, we've done enough study, we've done enough research to know in psychology that that's just not true just as we we've studied science to know okay the, the earth is not flat even though the bible presupposes that it is women are not more gullible than men even though the bible presupposes that it is so that was the understanding of the time and because women were not as educated of course at that point a lot of people weren't educated period most people weren't even literate and so when you when, when you consider just paul kind of taking that presupposition I find that interesting because people want to make make that a, a larger point than I think it really is. I think Paul's just speaking more. Uh, uh, he's making more of just a, an assumption there. Presumably, he's speaking just on based what the general knowledge is at that time, not necessarily what is factual. Um, you know, Jesus talking about the mustard seed being the smallest seed. Well, that's that's factually incorrect, but that's not what Jesus' point is. And so I think we have to be careful on that. So I'm glad you brought that point up. But I do know like the complementarian view or some who hold it, they, they really hang their hat on 1 Timothy 2. I mean, this is a big verse for them because they go try to go back to the garden to say this is pre-curse, this is pre-sin. And uh, some will even go to Romans 5, where Paul talks about Adam being the one who sinned and, and, and really attributing the sin to Adam. And so the argument that they try to make is that what Paul is doing, since assuming he's the author of both Romans and 1 Timothy, is he's, he's demonstrating the fact that the man was responsible for the woman, because that's the way God created things. And so because he didn't step in and stop his wife from, from making this bad decision, he is accountable ultimately for her sin because he didn't do anything. And so the argument goes something like this. Because of that, it could be properly said that even though Eve was the first one who technically sinned, it was really Adam who allowed sin into this world by not doing anything because it was his obligation as the head of the household to, to help uh, prevent sin from entering the world and making sure that Eve didn't sin. And so from that, uh, they, they go to verse 13 and 14 and say, for Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And, and that's how they try to follow the, the line of authority, I guess you can say, not necessarily creation order with animals and plants. And, and, and then all of a sudden, after that, God makes a woman after he makes all that. But in the sense of how sin uh, entered the world, demonstrate, and I, I'm kind of mumbling here or, or fumbling around here, but I'm trying to do my best to explain the argument as best as I understand it. But 
even before sin entered the world, it was man's responsibility to be the head of woman in making sure that, that she didn't sin. And Adam failed by allowing her to take of that fruit when he could have stopped her. So I'm just curious if you had heard that before and what your comments were and, and just to kind of get your thoughts on that. Actually, Kevin, I don't think I have heard that before. <clears throat> uh, I, I, it sounds like eisegesis to me. It sounds like reading into the Genesis account, a duty of Adam to be the head of the household. I don't, I don't see that in the creation account at all. Uh, I see that they, that before the fall, they were uh, male and female and they were equal and they both had dominion uh, over creation. And I don't see any duty of Adam to, uh, either not listen to his, the woman or to uh, or to step in or intervene or any any such thing. Um, they, I see them as equal sinners and the fact that um, that here uh, the woman is described as being the transgressor when uh, it says she was deceived and became a transgressor. So the sin was really, uh, disobedience and and not trust it sounds to me my understanding would be um, wanting not trusting in the relationship with God but wanting to uh, be godlike and to uh, and so you can call it curiosity you can call it rebellion you can it's been called all different names but but I don't see one more of a sinner than the other, but if I had to choose who was the biggest sinner, I guess I would say it was Adam, but not uh, not because he uh, didn't intervene with his wife, but and and be the head of the household. I just don't see that head of the household business anywhere in the in the creation story. So um, would it be fair to summarize? the egalitarian perspective, at least as you have uh, posited this evening on 1 Timothy 2, that this is speaking to a particular situation, specifically that of a worship service. And in this worship service, it sort of follows the same line of reasoning as 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, that the conduct that they engage in should be done in such a way as to reflect positively on the assembly and on the church in that particular area at that particular time, so as not to cause issue with the culture in which they're embedded. Would that be a fair way of summarizing that point that Paul's getting at here? Yes, because, uh, and again, I don't think I'm reading that in because I think it's right there in the text, in the verses immediately preceding that talk about how you comport yourself to and how that looks so that you don't impede the gospel message. Very good. And I'd, I'd like to make one quick comment on that before we move to the final point of our discussion in this in this conversation. But it seems like if we take that idea and we apply it to our modern culture and to our modern context that to prevent women from serving in whatever capacity that they have been gifted to serve. Because I've heard some women in private conversations, I've, I've had sisters within the churches of Christ that I have studied with and that I have conversed with that are far more eloquent than some of the male speakers and preachers that I have heard give a lesson or give a sermon 
and they would be dynamite preachers if only they were born with a Y chromosome instead of two X chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And it almost, well, it's not almost in this modern day and time and within our culture, it does impede the gospel to prohibit women from serving in the full capacity that God has gifted them in. And if this ideology, or I don't want to say ideology, that's the wrong word. If this perspective on this, um, what's the word I want to use? If this perspective on these troublesome passages, I'll just use your word. Mm -hmm. If this perspective on these troublesome passages in the Bible, as it relates to the role of women within worship and within service and within preaching and within ministry is stated in such a way to prevent the gospel from being impeded, then we would do well to exhibit that in our modern culture as well. So with that in mind, and I think with that being said, I kind of know where we're going with the last question. Um, and that is the role of an eldership. There are a lot of men that I know within the churches of Christ that may lean more towards the egalitarian perspective, and they may agree with everything that we've talked about. Some of them may speak to it publicly. Some of them may not. They may not have the chutzpah to be able to do so. Or within the uh, realm in which they move, they may fear retribution or being castigated or called out or something along those lines. But just about every man that I know of that I have visited with on this topic, um, either on online discussions or in person, they all have a really hard time in applying this ideology to the eldership. Because whenever we look at the qualifications that an elder possesses or that an elder should possess in um, Paul's discourse with Timothy and in Paul's discourse, discourse with Titus, in all of these cases, the language that is used is gendered towards the man, that a man is to be, you know, if anyone desires the office of an elder, he desires, you know, a, a noble cause. And I'm paraphrasing here, of course. But the, the statement is made that this is Im implicitly, and I would some even say explicitly, this is a man. This is a male's role in shepherding the church. And whenever you also get into this idea of being a husband of one wife, well, a woman can't be the husband of one wife. So how can a woman serve as an elder? How can a woman serve as a bishop or a shepherd? So in, in what sense would you respond to that, given that you have served as an elder and you're not a man? <laughs> well, and, and, and just to give a little um, extra to that question, too, because, to, I mean, it's, it falls under the same umbrella. Same thing with deacons as well is, you know, I know with Phoebe, we had discussed that. I, I don't know if it was this episode or the one last week, but for those who are listening, we were recording all this at one time. But, um, you know, a lot I, I was taught that uh, Phoebe could have been a a deaconess in the sense of a general servant, but not in an official sense, uh, because of course deacons as well. There, there's specific uh, qualifications there. They they have to to have a wife, and that obviously would imply within context that would mean it would have to be a male or a man. And so, there while there may be times when a woman could be a deacon in an unofficial sense or when a woman could speak uh, like she did in Corinth, for example, um, you know, or, and, and give lectures and teach in the official sense of the governing roles within scripture of the church, those would be reserved for 
for men. And so that's just go, you know, a little bit extra there. Pretty much the same question, but just with deacons as well. So uh, we're, yeah, we're looking forward to this one because I know everybody's been waiting to hear, okay, well, what does Linda say about this? (laughs) Oh, you saved the best for last. Uh, Actually, it won't be a surprise to anyone, I don't think, what uh, I would say. And that is, uh, well, there is some discussion about whether these passages about qualifications for elders and deacons are prescriptive or descriptive. Uh, Are they, so there's a lot of variation in understanding about this and are they, uh, you said they're qualifications for elders, but is it actually intended to be a checklist that someone must have every one of these and if they're an elder and the husband of one wife and uh, she dies, they don't have a wife anymore. So do they have to resign? There, there are all these what ifs. And they're just, uh, they're just not addressed here. And if they were a real um, requirement and that uh, it probably could have been a lot more explicit because they seem to be um, in the eyes of many interpreters descriptive of an ideal candidate. And uh, let me see, I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at First Timothy and what's our other elder passage? It's in Titus. I think it's around the third chapter. I'll, I'll start. Uh, Titus, one. Titus, Titus one. Titus one. Yeah. Yeah. Just go to Kevin. Anytime you have a question about where something is, Kevin's the guy you want to ask. Yeah, you except, know, I, except sons and daughters. And then I, don't know <laughs> mm-hmm, I should have, I should have figured that out. Um, for a bishop, I'm reading from Titus. A bishop is God's steward. Uh, well, let me start uh, earlier. Uh, elders uh, in every town, as I directed you, as someone who is blameless, married only once, or the husband of one wife, it depends on what translation you use, whose children are believers. There's another point of discussion. What if the children believe but weren't baptized? What if they're baptized believers, but they've now repudiated all of that? There's, we don't have all that spelled out. Not accused of debauchery and not rebellious. Well, we probably understand that. A bishop must be blameless, not arrogant, quick-tempered or addicted to wine or violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable, a lover of goodness, prudent, upright, devout, and self-controlled, have a firm grasp of the word that is trustworthy. So that whole apt to teach and being able to refute and all that. Does that describe um, each of the elders and the elderships that you have encountered? Mm -hmm. Or is it more of an ideal? Uh, Pragmatically, it's more of an ideal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've yeah. If you're if you're holding that as a true standard, which I've once did for many years, mm-hmm. um, you know, there there there's never been an eldership I've met that would be qualified. And I think that's why so many churches of Christ do not have elderships, especially smaller ones, because. You know, either they, as we like to say, put in the good old boys just so that we can say, hey, we're a scriptural church now that we have elders. Um, And then the other extreme, of course, is just not having elders at all because we feel like nobody can can live up to those qualifications. And I mean, I've met churches where there were good men who 
met every single one of those qualifications, but they were uh, just not a good teacher. They were afraid to stand in front of an audience or a Bible, even a small group to give a lesson. And so they, the church felt like, well, they weren't qualified then because they have to be able to preach and teach and they're not able to do that. So while they meet all these other uh, criteria that's listed, they, they don't meet that, that one that says they have to be able to teach. And, um, they, of course, they interpreted that as being a public speaker. And so therefore, you know, he's not qualified. So yeah, in short, to answer your question, no, I, I've, I would say that if I'm being honest and I've spoken at over 200 churches of Christ, because when I worked with the gospel of Christ, my job was going to different congregations. That was actually a frustrating point for me because I thought, man, there's not a single eldership that I would call qualified. And even the one I worked under, um, I, I oftentimes told them I didn't feel they were qualified. You did? Woo! You're a brave man. Well, okay. So back to our gender question. For, but, but I think you might agree. I think you might agree that this is more a description of, uh, of an ideal rather than a checklist of qualifications. Now that still doesn't answer the gender, uh, distinction that some uh, that appears to be here because it says husband of one wife but is that the uh, the qualification or is that the principle that you're not a polygamist or that you're not um, uh, you don't you don't just uh, marry him and then discard him you're not a serial yes. adulterer marrying yes. and divorcing and remarrying and divorcing yes. ad nauseum right and so that's uh, that part doesn't trouble me now um, for that reason. Now uh, we probably should back up a little bit in uh, in First Timothy three uh, eight, where it's talking about deacons, and then in their quote unquote qualifications. I, again, I, uh, and then it says uh, women. The women likewise. Likewise, the women likewise must be serious, not slanderers, temperate, faithful, and all things. Let the deacons be married only once and let them manage their children and their households well. Hmm. Who, who usually manages children and households? In that particular uh, context, it would be the women. Mm -hmm. And even in our context, it would still be the women. Well, in Titus chapter 2, I was actually pulling that up. Right after the qualifications of elders are given uh, in that letter, we see that uh, it's talking about managing the household and teaching the children. Right, right. Uh, But but that's what the... um, that's what the older women are to teach the younger women mm-hmm. in Titus 2. Yeah, so yeah, teach the younger women to, um, among other things, manage their, be managers of their household, self-control, chaste, and also be submissive to their husband. Why? So that the word of God may not be discredited. Again, these are all seem to be connected with... Um, uh, how is it going to look to those who are looking at you as an exemplar of what Christianity of what this Christ thing is all about? Now, back to the, back to the uh, elders uh, being, being male. Uh, I don't think it was really within Paul's wildest dream that there would be a woman there who at that point that he was writing 
would have been qualified to serve as a shepherd. She was probably illiterate. She may, there was no scripture except the Torah, you know, and the writings, but there was no Jesus scripture she could read about. Uh, there wasn't for, <clears throat> there weren't for anybody unless it was like maybe Mary who sat at the foot of Jesus and, and, um, and discuss some, but there was, it was just, I read that as uh, beyond his imagination when he was writing this letter uh, or these letters that there would have been qualified women to do that at this time. Uh, now, he did allow for special commissioning, I think, uh, uh, for those women who are mentioned in Romans 16, uh, maybe to go out and have a leadership role at Junia, but outstanding among the prominent among the apostles or Priscilla and Aquila, the teaching, some of those very things that are described as qualifications for uh, a church uh, elder. And again, I think it goes down better if we, if we focus less on being the overseer and the ruler, just like husbands ruling over your wives, if we think of it in the pastoral dimensions of it. And just as the Old Testament calls God the good shepherd of the sheep, and then the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Uh, the leaders in the church have to give account for their flock. And so there's a way in which they are the, uh, they are the shepherds of their flock. And so I don't think that the intention of these, I don't really call them qualifications, but these descriptions, but you, it's okay. I can understand to call them a qualification not in the sense of a checklist. I don't think those were intended to be uh, a gender specific list. I think they were intended to be a descriptive of what the, um, the shepherds of the church, the leaders of the church were supposed to, and the ones who had to make the hard decisions were, uh, and that occasionally means ruling um, or being a bishop, what they were supposed to do. I don't think, uh, that he was thinking that there would be any women at that time qualified to do that. Just as if he had said, just as when he said men should work by the sweat of their brow, he wasn't thinking about computers. It just wasn't, it was beyond the pale of his imagination at that time. Linda, I don't, I don't know if this, if this would come into play here, but I thought a lot about how the Bible just, it presupposes its own context a lot of times, and we miss that. It, it, there's, there's context that it, the writers would understand, the authors would understand, um, but today we, we miss that because we're 2,000 years removed. And, you know, one thing I think about is how there are a lot of passages in Scripture that are gender-specified, but we would apply it across the board. For example, Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to lust has committed adultery in his heart. Well, I guess that means that um, a man can look upon another man with lust in his heart because the Bible never says that. Or a woman could look upon a man with lust in her heart because the Bible never says that, that, you know, that that's wrong. We would take Matthew 5, 28 and say, even though it's very gender specific here in the instruction, 
it's not that Jesus is so concerned with being gender specific. He's just assuming the context at that point. He's, he's making, he's making the overriding point. You don't need to, you don't need to have lust in your heart over someone. I mean, that, that's the whole point that Jesus is making. And I find that there's, you know, that's not the exception to the rule. That seems to be, you know, just, just pretty normal in the writings of a patriarchal society is that, you know, even today, I've tried to, in my writing, start using the term humankind instead of mankind. And, you know, because I was taught to use mankind, and now we're, okay, well, a better, more descriptive word would be humankind. But that doesn't mean if someone ever reads some of my writings 2,000 years and go, well, look, Kevin said Jesus died for all mankind. He didn't say he died for all humankind. Well, clearly, we have to take things in context. And here's something that's very interesting to me. The word brothers is used a lot in scripture to be gender, gender neutral. And even sometimes when in the, in the Greek, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's male, uh, it's still implying male and female. You know, when Paul is writing to the, to the brothers, or he's speaking of brothers, he's, he's not just speaking to the males there, he's speaking to the females. And so I don't know if that is unrelated to kind of some of the things you're saying, but I could see how that at least could be brought in possibly to the conversation to say, okay, Paul's just assuming the context here. If there were no females who would be qualified, then of course he wouldn't be talking about female elders here because he knew that there he would only be talking to males to begin with within this context and not that this should be applied universally for all time. It's like uh, when Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 is giving a command for a contribution. We shouldn't assume that that's for all churches because that money was going to the needy saints in Jerusalem. We shouldn't assume that the needy saints in Jerusalem were also taking up a weekly collection for themselves because they didn't have it. <laughs> and so, you know, I think just kind of looking at some of these laws, as some would call them, instructions, or even just examples, descriptive examples, uh, I think we all have to be careful to say how far, you know, to overextend what the, the, the primary meaning was and even to overextend the application. And again, I do, thank you for that, Kevin. I do agree with you that we don't have any trouble extrapolating from a, an instruction to a specific male or a group of males if you, uh, and, and understand that there is a principle there that applies to all people. If you have odd against your brother, you should do X, Y, Z. Well, what if it's against your sister? Or what if you're a sister? <laughs> so we understand that uh, some of these are principles and even though they may have been genderfied, uh, the, the, the principle abides and actually has always abided, was, was a broad principle that we uh, understood applied across the board. And so I, I feel like the principles in these qualification lists for uh, elders and for deacons mm -hmm. remain as as uh, what we should strive for, what we should attain, how we would assess whom, um, whom we ask the Holy Spirit to lead us toward. And uh, as, we, uh, as we choose our leaders, um, but I don't think that the point of that was to, uh, was to limit uh, church leadership, including, including being the elder, the shepherd, to a one gender. If your gift is in leadership, and that is listed as one of the gifts of the spirit, is in leadership and in administration, 
if that is your gift that the Holy Spirit did the Holy Spirit just carve that out and say, well, okay, in First Corinthians, you know, 12, 13 and 14, uh, women can have all these gifts, but if they have the gift of leadership, zip it, you know, they can't, they cannot uh, be an, uh, an administrator, a leader, um, a decision maker. No, I don't, I don't think that that was his, the point he was trying to make there. I think he was trying to describe the kind of person that would be uh, have to give account for the souls of the of the people in the flock, and that would devote themselves to the flock. Now, as a practical matter as well, I should just mention that in that content, in that time, uh, women didn't live long. Men often outlived women, went through several wives because they all they were just having babies all the time, and so. Um, so often, uh, women didn't didn't live long enough to, uh, as a practical matter, have the experience that is being described here. A person that's been seasoned, that's been tempered, that has um, exercised probably leadership and lesser things, um, and. There are probably some other reasons, just be the fact that it was there weren't really female leaders in the uh, in that patriarchal <laughs> system to begin with. That's right. That's yeah. Right. They they would have been few and far between. I mean, we know in Acts seventeen three it talks about some leading women who were converted um, when Paul went in there uh, to the to the temple uh, or not the temple, excuse me, the synagogue to teach, and so. Yeah, there, there were some leading women there, but that wasn't really didn't seem to be the general rule. And some something else, you know, I think of first Peter two nine that talks about how we are all part of the royal priesthood, which is which is another way of saying that we are all equal mm -hmm. in the way that we serve God. Because when someone thought of the priesthood, that was a, a, a that was a role in which we served one another. And so you know, this has just been really encouraging. I mean, we could we could spend probably um, hours upon hours just kind of talking about this. And and I think that I hope for our audience, this is something that they've really been able to to listen to, whether they end up agreeing with everything or not. I hope that it has allowed them to hear a different perspective. Um, this is definitely where I lean more toward. Uh, I, I've certainly... Um, Ha, you know, still have some questions, but I can say that about anything. I have a lot of questions about the existence of God for that matter. But, you know, I think that overall, when just looking at the, what I call the character of the Bible and the narrative arc, you know, I think pragmatically speaking, people sometimes get, legalism can really hinder us from, we, we get caught up on the small things. And I know of a lot of people who go to churches who have female elders, but they don't call them elders. <laughs> uh, but it, in fact, they would say that it's sinful, but yet the women are the ones leading that congregation. They are the ones leading that charge and the men are not. Or there's a few men who are, but there's also a few women who are. And while people wouldn't officially say that they're female elders pragmatically and for all for all intended purposes of how they are fulfilling their role, they are certainly uh, shepherds. 
And, you know, so that's why I think I've, I've told people, you know, it's not to get too caught up on some of these things, you know, because churches in the same way are like, well, we just need elders. And, uh, you know, people end up just throwing guys in and they take their picture of them, put, put them on their bulletin board and nothing's changed. And, you know, and I think it's the same way where people, oh, we can't have female elders. Well, you kind of already do. Uh, most churches, I can guarantee you have female shepherds there, even the most conservative uh, churches of Christ have female shepherds, whether they recognize it or not. And uh, when we're all part of that royal priesthood and we're all one in Christ, I think that does change a lot of things. And and I'm sure your explanation of the qualifications of elders is not going to pacify a lot of folks uh, who are listening. But I, I, I do think that it is... I think there has to be already a level of interpretation to be at in order for that answer to be satisfactory. To me, that answer is satisfactory. Um, is it airtight? Is it bulletproof? No, I don't think hardly any arguments are, but I do think it's satisfactory because you're allowing the context to, to speak for itself. You're looking at the historical context, the cultural context. And, and, you know, I think you've, you've put forth a very uh, plausible, solution and uh, for lack of better words, or at least an, an answer, an alternative. And so I think you've done a phenomenal job. Um, since I lean more toward your view, I'm, I definitely think you did a good job uh, presenting it. And, uh, you know, I, I just love your demeanor. That was one thing I told, uh, told Lee. I said, you know, I said, Linda's just I said, I've only met her in person once and I've, I've only talked to her a handful of times. I said, but she's just so sweet and she's so kind and she's so easygoing. You're so calm because Lee and I, we're always kind of, you know, sometimes we can get a little excited and, 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 and you know, get, get too, a little too into what we're saying sometimes and forget our point. You've just done, just listening to you has been so easy. And, you know, Lee and I haven't provided a whole lot of commentary because we're, we're learning from you and you've just been so easy to listen to. And uh, Lee, I know you're, you kind of usually ask if there's any concluding remarks, but is there anything that in particular that you would want to just circle back around to or bring up that we haven't discussed yet as a way to just end uh, the conversation here? Well, just to some, uh, to sort of put it all under a, uh, uh, a narrative or uh, <clears throat> the guiding principle that I see implicit in all these quote troubling passages uh, from the epistles in particular, um, I, I see them being remarkably similar in that they are connected by the idea of uh, we don't want to give unbelievers a reason to disparage Christianity to show that because of the freedom and love we have in Christianity, um, they're already so unconventional and so really liberating that we uh, that, that makes them subject to uh, scandal and rumors and misinterpretation. And so it seems to me that Peter and Paul and all these uh, epistles that we've been reading are saying, don't give accusers fuel for their story. You may be free, but they don't understand. They, they think you want to live in some unlawful or immoral way. They don't understand. So you live wisely and you forego your freedoms as may be appropriate under the circumstances at the time and place where you find yourself. And uh, just as the slaves, you uh, uh, know, yeah, if you have occasion to get your freedom, then yes, exercise it. But if not, then 
remain where you are and be submissive. And so today, since our situation isn't exactly parallel to the uh, that of the uh, first century, it doesn't mean that egalitarians are trying to disregard this, these passages. We're trying to interpret them wisely and and uh, discern the, the principles, the changeless principles. And uh, even as the manner that they're applied in a given uh, context uh, must change from time to time. And in fact, by ignoring these cultural changes, I would submit that we now drive uh, people away, uh, unbelievers away by insisting on this rigid, um, literal transcultural application of instructions to specific churches at specific times. And if that's what we're doing, we're, we are causing ourselves, causing the word of God to be dishonored. So it's not just a, a theoretical issue and it's not even um, uh, a, uh, just a scholarly issue or a, I gotta get right issue. It's I don't wanna do damage uh, to the very, the, the very church that uh, Jesus gave himself for. And uh, that if that means foregoing my freedom, then, then so be it. Well, per personally, and, and I kind of just want to summarize where, where I'm at, because I would like to just hear your quick thoughts on this, because what really has brought me to where I'm at is, is studying slavery. Um, I'm, I've been doing a lot of study on the issue of slavery for my new book. And that just, that wasn't even, you know, I wasn't even really studying the role of, of women or uh, egalitarianism. I was studying slavery. And it's interesting how people today who would just despise slavery and say that we should never use those texts, they couldn't believe how those who were pro-slavery back, you know, uh, you know, just, just not too long ago, um, would, would quote those passages. And we have so many, uh, ministers and pastors from all denominations and church leaders who were quoting scripture in justification of 19th century slavery. And we would say, well, that's just horrible. I can't believe they're doing that today. And, you know, I, I sometimes wonder in another three, 400 years, are people going to be saying that about us? I can't believe they were using these passages to think women were gullible, more gullible than men. I can't believe people are using these passages to try to pigeonhole women and, and not being able to, to serve. I mean, didn't they know better? And here's kind of how, in summary, I explain it to people with where I'm at, is that at creation, it was never God's intention to make the male head over the female and to make the female subordinate to, to the male. And that that was something that when sin entered the world was a natural consequence, this idea of, of authority and headship and those types of things we see played out in the Old Testament and not just in the Old Testament world, but literally in the ancient Near Eastern world of this patriarchal ideology that we see just dominating, for lack of better words, society for so many years. And by the time you come to the first century, we see how, and of course, we see glimpses of how the new, the Old Testament itself, even at times, was what uh, was was more progressive than some of the cultures around them. In in some areas, I mean, some of that I have to be careful. I don't want to make a blanket statement, but you know, they 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 had judges at times, and we know Deborah, and they had some of the pro, uh, some of the prof, female prophets and. 
And then we come to the New Testament and we see how Jesus treats females. And then we see these passages about how there's no more male and female in Christ, no more slave uh, and, and, and no more um, you know, master. And we see those. And I think there is a clear trajectory that is found in scripture. And I am, I firmly believe that the, the slave, the master slave, male and female, you, you cannot, in my opinion, you cannot separate the implications of that teaching because everywhere you see Paul telling a wife to submit to her husband, you see, or, or Peter saying that you also see Peter saying, okay, if you're a slave, obey your master. And even if they beat you still just sit there and take it. Well, we would say, Today, we know much better, but they were working within their own culture, and there is a trajectory presented in Scripture of how ultimately humans, especially those in Christ, should know we shouldn't own others because we're already truly owned by Jesus Christ, not as, as just slaves, but as friends, as fellow heirs in the kingdom, as children, sons and daughters. And I think that there's a trajectory because people would argue that there's not a there's a trajectory for against slavery, but there's not a trajectory that's being set forth, um, uh, you know, against kind of this male ownership. And I think there is. I think you pointed that out in Ephesians five. I think that's exactly the trajectory Paul is setting because he's saying, here's what it should really look like. the 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 love between a husband and a wife should look like this. It should be mutual submission. It should be mutual love for one another. One's not domineering over the other. But even still within the context, we see Paul still not falling prey, but just being accommodative still to the culture he lived in. And we see that with slavery as well. And so I do think that these there, there are some trajectories that are set forth. I do think some of these gender-specific examples, laws, instruction, uh, prescriptions, descriptions, whichever, whatever way we want to call them or what route we want to go. I do think that we can understand those more within that cultural context that helps us to try to at least struggle with and wrestle with some of these passages in light of the bigger narrative arc in some of these passages that are very clear in scripture versus those that maybe are not as clear uh, to us contextually. Like you said, I mean, save through childbirth. I mean, I, what is that exactly? You know, do all women have to have babies? And if so, that brings us back to the argument. Well, okay, you're going to have to suffer through it because that's just part of the curse. You can't take any medication. So, I mean, this just kind of can go on and on and on, but that's kind of where I'm at is just this trajectory in scripture of trying to get things back to the way they are in the kingdom, knowing that here on earth, as long as sin is still in this world, that's never going to be a fully realized uh, kingdom, but that is something that we are moving into as children of God and something, you know, there's, there's still always going to be racism in the, in the church to some extent, there's always going to be prejudice to some extent, but that's not what we should be aiming toward. And there's always going to be this, you know, beliefs different between male and female and, and, and what that looks like. But ultimately we shouldn't believe that males have authority over a female in the sense of what has generally been believed. And then one other comment I want to make, because a lot of people who are comp would claim they're a compliment, they hold the complementarian view today. They want to, they want to say they have history on their side. The problem is most people in the churches of Christ who would claim that they're a complementarian would not agree with the same view of headship as most people used to teach. And even up until the fifties and sixties, most today would say that that's not right. Um, you know, that, that Christians had a wrong view of that. So it seems to me that even those who are in the complementarian camp 
are moving. <laughs> it seems they're 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 not going to claim egalitarianism, but it, it it seems that even they are would not sub would not subscribe to the views that even those perhaps their grandparents held to. They would even say, well, no, cultural changes things and we understand things differently. And so um, I, I just think this is a fantastic conversation and we have really, uh, really covered a lot here. So yeah, go ahead, Linda. I, well, we got haven't, I just had uh, two final little remarks, observations. Uh, one, I, I don't want to be too negative, but uh, yes, they do have history on their side, but it's not a good history. And for example, Aristotle wrote, that all females, both animal and human, were inferior to males and said, we should look upon the female state as being, as, as it were, a deformity. Wow. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who had a huge influence on Western thought and theology, wrote, woman is defective and misbegotten, for the active power in the male seed tends to the production of a perfect likeness according to the masculine sex, while the production of woman comes from defect in the active power or some material indisposition, or even from some external influence, as that of a south wind, which is moist, whatever. Oh. And then, uh, and he says, um, and he says, uh, Fro even Freud, you know, in the 20th century, the father of modern psychology, uh, and still um, dominated up until just a few decades ago, uh, he viewed women as inferior to men, and he considered their desires to accomplish something in their own right and to determine their own actions as a result of their envy of the male sex. And so, yes, there is a long history on their side, but that doesn't make it right. The, uh, but this, uh, that I'm being a slightly stocky, not intending to, but uh, um, Freud, Aristotle, and Aquinas aggravated me. Um, and then I do want to say that in my, uh, growing up we didn't we didn't recite the lord's prayer and we we were aware of it we knew it but we didn't really uh place a huge amount of stock in it particularly the part about when jesus prayed thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and i think it, maybe it was my own uh, distortion of my youth but i don't think so i think the churches of in my history, uh, thought about the kingdom as being off in, you know, in the sweet by and by. And, and it really didn't have much, all that much influence on transforming society here. Mm -hmm. And I think other uh, groups of Christian believers have probably emphasized transforming the world here and given uh, not enough attention to life after death and to uh, the justice and mercy that we all are hoping for then and that's available to us through Christ. But I do think there is something to saying, well, yes, that is how it is in the kingdom, Galatians 3.28. Uh, we are all equal in the kingdom. Let's have that kingdom. Let's transform it and, and make it be visible here to the extent that we can. So well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. This, it, 
and one of the things that I really appreciate, Linda, is you're just as gregarious as Kevin and I both are. Kevin and I love to talk and it's really wonderful finding someone with your life experience, with your educational background, with the accolades and accomplishments that you have been able to achieve in this life, who likes to talk as much as we do and who, for lack of a better term, geeks out on this stuff as much as we do. And it has been, this has been just a pure joy. I have enjoyed getting to speak with you and getting to converse with you. And at some point we're going to have to make a trek up to Edmond and come worship with you all at Grace Point. We, I would love to meet you person to person and face to face and even hug your neck. Once all this COVID day, day spring, day, day spring, day spring. Yeah. I was thinking about Josh Josh, uh, that we had on a while back Grace Point. So yes, day spring up in Edmond, we'll have to come and pay you guys a visit and come see you. But yes, this has been a great conversation. I hope it's as much of a blessing to our listeners as it's been to me. And as we sign off, I want to go ahead and just ask all of our listeners, if this has benefited you in some way, if this has been informative to you, then share this with your friends, share it with your neighbors, shoot, share it with your enemies because they need Jesus too. Um, if you take issue with anything that's said here, if there are any questions you have that we didn't cover, drop us a line, sh- shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Um, We always love hearing from our listeners. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. We appreciate all of you. We love all of you, and we wish you all a good day.